say I forget. So as we, this uh, day, this afternoon, we're going to be befriending the pain in us that arises in us as we experience what is happening and see what is happening in our world and how that affects even the most intimate aspects of our own lives because we're not separate. And that means that we are doing this work not just for ourselves, for our own pleasure, for our own enlightenment, for our own whatever, but we are doing it for life. Because it's actually life now that's in question, whether it can continue at least life for complex life forms on this planet. So what a wonderful thing to be alive in this time when we have uh, such a beautiful work to do when it's so needed. And when everything that we ever learned about courage and connectedness can be put to such beautiful use for our own joy and the welfare of all beings. Isn't that a great thing? Would you rather have skipped this moment? <laughs> any rate, you're in it. And so this work today is about our uh, befriending rather than trying to cement over, pave over, repress, get away from, pathologize, medicate. We befriend it and we honor it. Uh, and that is these, the responses and reactions that arise in us uh, when we see the disarray and dysfunction of our world and our lives in this world. And uh, Prajnaparamita asks us to do this and uh, we discover, as I did at times, that it's like she breathes through us. So let's, and particularly in this part of the work, being steadily held, held steady by the breath. Is, it's always a help in any spiritual pursuit or any med meditation or anything, but particularly now. So let's just oh, feel the miracle of our breath. And you can put your mind on any <clears throat> aspect of it that you experience, any sensation. The passage of air through the nostrils, down the windpipe. The filling of the chest cavity, the lungs. The rise and fall of the abdomen. the touch of breath on your upper lip. The breath is a wonderful friend. It's always with you. There's nowhere you will go and nothing you will face where you will not have that breath with you. And as it's with you, it connects the mind with the body, doesn't it? That be beautiful merging. And it connects the inside with the outside.
And the amazing thing is it happens by itself. It doesn't depend on, you know, our, our brother, our cousins, the dolphins, they have to remember to breathe. But we, we just, whatever we're doing, we're just doing, breathing away. It's like we're being breathed. Experience that. Being breathed by life. Just like everyone in this room is being breathed by life. Everyone in California, in this whole continent of Turtle Island, on all the continents and on, in the oceans and in the air, all the beings being breathed by life, even the trees being breathed by life. So you can very well experience that as uh, being breathed through. Letting the breath itself be a reminder of our mutual belonging. And in this day, as we will uh, engage in some practices, first there'll be some teachings here, then there'll be a story and a song, and then we'll do some practices uh, with uh, experiencing quite vividly, perhaps, our, uh, the pain we feel in this time whether it's fear or grief or outrage and anger or overwhelm, so that we will learn to not be afraid of it and learn to see its other side. <coughs> Which comforts us and strengthens us and takes us beyond fear and beyond panic. So that no matter what happens for us, we will not, in our fear or panic, we will, or we will not either, it's like we're walking on a road in this time toward a future that we're working to make a sustainable, livable future for our planet and our children and our children's children. But on the way, we're on this road and there's a ditch on either side. And in our fear, we could fall into one ditch or another. And on one side is paralysis. We shut down. And this is a nation of shut down people, don't you think? few nods there I would help that's good <laughs> and on the other side there's paralysis or panic and both the paralysis the close down and the panic come out of fear and this work we're doing today and that you've probably been doing all along that's why you're here that's why you're here but so that you know to go beyond fear because the world needs everything you have to bring in your generous heart and hands. Hmm. So where was I? Oh, so uh, we're coming to, I wanted to think about the uh, Prajnaparamita.
the mother of all Buddhas, the perfection of wisdom, offers liberation. But this liberation is not attained by turning away from this suffering world. A quote from her scriptures in her voice. Those who are certain that they have gotten safely out of this world are unfit for full enlightenment. So she had strong, strong views about that. That no matter what kind of pickle you're in, the solution is not escape, but transformation. A transformation that happens through the courage of love. And that's what we're made for. The light that she bestows does not eclipse or dazzle or blind one to worldly mundane phenomena and the traffic of beings, but clear and cool. And these are sort of this clinical eye of hers, and she has a lot of eyes. She has three here, and she has eyes in her hands, and then in the forms that she will takes as the centuries go by, the, that capacity of vision. But it's a vision that is, uh, these things, yatabhutam is the word, as it is. A kind of clinical, maternal. Okay, show me that scraped knee. Don't pretty things up for me. We'll look exactly at what's going on. So this gaze of hers, the capacity, she brings us a capacity to see reality as it is, and all of them are yata bhuta, fully accepting the multiplicities and particularities of things, is repeatedly expressed as a gift of the mother. For example, uh, today at lunch it came up among the teachers, oh, we do talk a little bit. <laughs> is that a secret? Oh, but we found ourselves talking about white supremacy, and how hard it is to be doing this work uh, when we're in a society and in a place, a culture still so stamped with white privilege. And the mother of all Buddhas would ask us to look at that and see that clearly and to see how uh, the industrial growth society and capitalism grows, grew up hand in hand with the North Atlantic, the, the Atlantic slave trade. So this clear seeing, that analytical, almost clinical gaze uh, is fine. You know, she, 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 tears are fine, but don't let the tears dim you to the actuality of the causes and conditions and effects that bring forth the suffering. You get me? A few more nods, please. Okay. The mother of all Buddhas, then, is in her scriptures, as I said the first night and yesterday, is where we finally hear, see the figure of the Bodhisattva. We see ourselves named as the, the those on the path, those who act for her, inspired for her as uh, the bodhisattvas. This is where they're named, the very first scriptures. That's kind of exciting to me.
And she does not call the bodhisattva beyond this world to final nirvana. And it's probably, as with me, perhaps one of the first things you heard about the bodhisattva was that uh, it's the one who could stand seeing clearly liberated from hatred and fear and delusion, standing at the gates of nirvana, doesn't step through but comes back again and again and again into samsara, into the world of suffering. So there's this choice that's right there of choice of a service, choice of a Thanks a lot, but I don't want to go that way. I'm going to come back. It's as if there's a knowledge of it who taking our inter-existence, our mutual belonging, so seriously that the Bodhisattva says, well, actually, I don't believe in any private salvation, and if it did exist, I don't want it. <laughs> We're going to wake up together or not at all. So you may choose to think of that as your personal preference. I'd like to have everybody come with me or just as a statement of fact that we're that interconnected in life that we awaken together or not at all. So to quote from excerpts from the scriptures as I wrote in this chapter, in this dwelling of perfect wisdom, you, my bodhisattva sons and daughters, shall become saviors of the helpless, defenders of the defenseless, a light to the blind, and you shall guide to the path those who have lost it, and you shall become a support to those who are without support. In such passages as these, the bodhisattva path is, for the first time, fully expressed as a summons to all persons. Up until that point, the term bodhisattva was there, of course. It meant a Buddha to be. But it referred just to the previous incarnations of Gautama Siddhartha, the Buddha, Sakyamuni. So Bodhisattva meant all his earlier lives. And now the logic of our uh, of dependent co-arising, of the radical interdependence of all phenomena, shows, well, if that's true for him, it's true for us as well. So here, the in her scriptures, the Bodhisattva path is fully expressed for the first time as a summons to all persons. And the skill in means, that's a wonderful term. It stands for action and ingenious action for the sake of all beings, often represented by, when you come into Tibetan Buddhism, by the Dorji, a compassionate skill and means. Um, and seen as essential to enlightenment. Upaya, the readiness to reach out and improvise is the other face of wisdom. This is like a phrase that was from the time of the Buddha to in the earliest scriptures. They talk of, I love this metaphor, where uh, moral action and wisdom, Sheila and Prajna, are referred to as two hands washing each other. Do it. Now you can't have 
Each is necessary. They're mutual. So does wisdom sharpens up uh, action, and action produces wisdom. They need each other, upaya, and, and they are represented by, in Tibetan, these two symbols, upaya, compassionate action, and wisdom. Each is necessary. Together they constitute the ground for action and delight, revalorizing samsara while assigning no fixed reality to its varied manifestations. When Prajnaparamita is later portrayed as Tara, see, because she's like the source of the feminine imagery of the subsequent centuries, and especially Green Tara, her gestures recall this active, compassionate aspect of the mother. For the right arm is stretched out to help, and the right leg no longer is tucked up in the aloof serenity of the lotus posture, but extends downward, ready to step out into the world. And later, with um, Jennifer, we're going to do a Green Tara chant this afternoon. So it's one thing to think of what the scriptures call us to, and it certainly has reverberations in other spiritual paths, Islam and Sufi and Judaism, surely, and also Christianity, my word. But now this uh, uh, opening, uh, this befriending uh, of the world, this not turning away from the pain seems particularly hard. And it seems hard for a couple of reasons. Maybe you'll think of some more. But on one hand, the dominant culture dismisses it and pathologizes it. The dominant culture, which is that of the industrial growth society, as I call it in my work, I use that term more than I use capitalism because it characterizes politi some political economies that do not self-identify as capitalist, but that also are driven by industrial power and by uh, a, um, uh, a literally suicidal need to keep growing. And this growth economy, whether you see it uh, in, uh, in, in one mega power or another, uh, US or China, or just through the whole globalized uh, economy, is uh, seized by a need to grow that is a, a kind of madness because even a third grader can see that you can't keep growing on a finite planet. And though the cost of this growth economy is becoming ever more evident 
and what is happening to our oceans and our atmosphere, our rivers and our forests, our soil, our people, our economies. It's taboo to even acknowledge it. If you're running for office and dare to speak out against growth economy, it's the kiss of death, don't you know? So the uh, message of the media is that things are okay. We just need, and that's what we hear from the politicians and from the corporate leaders and from the media and from the military. It's okay, we just have to get back. Just, we're having a hard time now, but just get back to growing the economy and it'll be okay. Hmm. So, Buddhist teachers that have been inspiring to me um, point to the fact that in our time, the causes of suffering which the Buddha taught were not some evil principle, but were greed, hatred, and delusion, have achieved institutionalized forms, humongous systems of, uh, like greed is taken the uh, trillion dollar industries of, of the consumer society cranking out goods and re reframing our purpose and nature as consumers. And the uh, hate as this incredible machine, highly profitable to the weapons makers of uh, military and war making. An institutionalized form of delusion in the media itself. So that we're our there's huge collective trance that we live in that it would persuade us that everything, on the one hand, that this is normal. So it even takes an act of a kind of intellectual courage to realize it's not normal. And, uh, and that it's the, um, and that, uh, we should be happy. It's all right. And if we don't think so, then that grief and depression, craziness that we feel, the illnesses we begin to feel of soul and spirit and body too, are seen as some pathology that needs to be treated. And unfortunately, although there have been very brave and creative uh, psychologists and psychotherapists, there have also been in the, that uh, vast uh, professional discipline those who are in service to that... Um, well, we could just say the pharmaceutical industry. So that's where we're at a point where to believe in your pain, and I take that phrase from the poet uh, Theodore Rethke. Wow, she said, I believe in my pain. You, you can decide, well, we all, I believe in our mutual belonging because I get, it, it, it turns me on and I get ecstatic but also you can believe in it even more because of the pain you feel at what we're doing to each other. And so this, um, we're going against the stream in a way. And also uh, because the situation has become so, uh, immense. So 
um, the suffering of our world, the spasms of extinction. I don't, you all know, you all know, and it's, uh, and that it's, uh, but it's hard to look at. People don't know how to talk about it. When we met here before you came and with the teachers, we think how in our own lives people don't want to talk about this. And in our work together here, we're going to give some practice in that in our last days about how we can help people feel comfortable to share what's in their hearts about uh, the larger picture and the future of ourselves and our children. So I have uh, we are fully we are fully capable of seeing and responding to what is happening to our world and in our and its repercussions in our lives. How it's affecting our work in the world, our job search, our health our family life, as well as what it's doing to the survival of other species and the dead zones and the oceans and so forth. We're fully capable of that. And we're fully capable as our, our brothers and sisters out there. And why I'm here with you is that I know that we can be a hugely creative force for the sake of our world. And I know that because of what I've experienced with living my life with Prajnaparamita. Now I've been asking you to just listen to my voice, but I want to bring in another voice now. I told you how uh, yesterday, when I told a little bit of the story of my life, how I came to encounter the Dharma 50 years ago in India in meeting the Tibetan refugees as they were coming over, fleeing the Chinese occupation of their homeland there on the roof of the world and bringing out of that fastness what had been their teachings. So I have been in close touch with those that I worked with back then, as has my family and my friends. And they've settled, and they're in a community, and they have teachers that go out. As a matter of fact, one of their teachers has been here teaching, Sonia Rinpoche. I was back there visiting uh, a about 30 years ago, actually it was 35 years ago, 1980, with my family. And I received a teaching from uh, my dear friend, one of the Rinpoches. And uh, it is a prophecy. It is a prophecy that's 12 centuries old and comes from the Kalachakra Tantra. It's run through my life like a river and through and I'm sharing it with you and many of you will have heard it already perhaps you will have read it I didn't write it down for uh, years until I saw that because it's an oral transmission but then I found that uh, people who had been in my classes and workshops put it in their books so I thought well I'll put it in mine <laughs> so you can read it but it's really it's really good now having heard it you can share it but you, it's it's not to be shared if you haven't heard it I want you to hear it uh, as if it is about you. And you will recognize, listening to it, that 
the heroic figure in it, the protagonists in it, uh, called the Shambhala warriors, are a metaphor for the Bodhisattva. You'll get that. So this is how, uh, and with thanks to Dugu Chugyal Rinpoche, how he sat me down at the end of 1980. Ronald Reagan had just been elected. I was over there working with Sarvodia. My family had come to visit me. We were visiting, and he sat me down, and he told me this. There comes a time when all life on earth is in danger. In this time, great powers have arisen, barbarian powers. And although they waste their wealth in preparations to annihilate each other, they have much in common. And among the things they have in common are weapons of unfathomable devastation and death and technologies that lay waste to the world. And it is just at this time when the future of all beings hangs by the frailest of threads that the kingdom of Shambhala emerges. Now you can't go there because it's not a place. It exists in the hearts and minds of the Shambhala warriors. And actually, you can't tell a Shambhala warrior by looking at her or him because there's no uniforms, no insignia, no banners that identify what side they're on, no barricades that they can stand on to threaten the enemy or rest behind to regroup. They don't even have any home turf. Ever and always, they must negotiate their way across the terrain of the barbarian powers. And it is at this time that great courage is required of the Shambhala warriors. Moral courage and physical courage because they are going to go right into the heart of the barbarian powers to dismantle the weapons and weapons in every sense of the word. They're going to go to where armaments are manufactured and deployed and also into the corridors of power where the decisions are made and dismantle the weapons. Then he said, Joanna, mark this. The Shambhala warriors know that these weapons can be dismantled. Why? Because they are manomaya. That means mind-made. They are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind. Because the dangers that are coming upon us now are not being brought by some evil extraterrestrial empire or some preordained fate or some satanic deity, they arise out of our preferences, out of our relationships, out of our habits of mind, speech, and body. They are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind. So then he said, now is the time when the Shambhala warriors go into training. <laughs> I said, how do they train? <laughs> and he said, they train in the use of two weapons. And he held up, I said, what are they? And he held up his hands. He didn't actually hold the objects, but the way the lamas in the lama dances of his people hold the ritual objects. 
compassionate action and wisdom. And he says, you need them both. You need the compassion because that provides the fuel to move you out where you need to go to do what you need to do. And what it boils down to is not being afraid of the suffering of your world or of yourself. Because when you're not afraid of the suffering, then nothing can stop you. But by itself, he said, that weapon is hot. Yes, it's not surprising that they call it a thunderbolt. That's hot. Can burn you out if it's alone, if that's all you have. So you need the other. You need the wisdom. Because with that, that's the wisdom of the radical interdependence, interconnectedness of all phenomena. And with that, you know that this is not a war between the good guys and the bad guys, but that the line between good and evil runs through the landscape of every human heart. And that even that we're so interwoven in the web of existence in Indra's net that even the smallest act with clear intention has repercussions through the web that can't even describe or measure. But that's a little cool, isn't it? It tends to be a kind of bit, bit abstract. So you need the heat of the compassion. You need them both. Well, when I heard that, I felt I was getting my marching orders. And I thought of the monks in the puja hall there in Tashijong, and how often as they chanted, their hands would be doing beautiful, moving hand gestures. And that often as not, they're dancing the interplay of karuna and prajna. Well, I was so excited. It was getting late in the afternoon, getting dark. I ran down the hill to the edge of the community where my family was staying on this visit, and I burst in, and there they were, and I said, you won't believe what I just heard from Chuja Rinpoche. And I proceeded to tell them. That was my first telling. And I finished. And my son, Jack, who was in college at the time, listened and he said, but mom, didn't he say I was going to turn out? <laughs> I'm so glad you laughed. <laughs> and I laughed too. And I said, honey, if Chuja Rinpoche had tried to tell me how this is going to turn out, I wouldn't have believed any of it. And don't you believe anyone who's telling you how this is going to turn out. Either those who say it's going to turn out okay or those who say it's hopeless and it's too late. It's the not knowing. It's that razor edge of uncertainty that keeps you alert, alive, present, and draws forth your creativity and the, your courage. Isn't that so? I had to check my watch. I'm okay. We're going to have a story and a song and then a little interactive stuff. But I need to breathe after telling that. So let's just sit with it for a minute. You can sit and feel uh, Prajnaparamita breathing, breathing through you. Sit in her lap and feel her breathing through you.
before our interactive work, you're going to get a story and a song. And they're totally related. Seven, eight years ago, I began to get obsessed about what I was hearing, about what was happening in northern Alberta with the tar sands. And I read and heard that this, driven largely by American oil interests, U.S., I mean, uh, and agreements with the Canadian and Alberta government, this obscenity of immensity of destruction of this peeling back of the boreal forest in order to go down and excavate and find this shale oil bitumen tar substance that with great cost and effort and pollution could be uh, rendered into uh, oil for export and brought down through pipelines across the United States. You've heard about the tar sands. Don't call it oil sands, tar sands of northern Alberta. I heard about how it was so big. Back then it was almost as big as the state of Florida. You could see this uh, disaster from outer space. Uh, I began to hear what was do it was doing to the wildlife and to the indigenous people who lived there and to the great rivers. And I felt somehow, I don't know how to explain it, but I needed to see it. So one night it was, we were over at Holy Names. Where are you, honey? Come on over here. You're too far away. It was an evening at Holy Names, remember? And you were uh, coming and, and singing as I talked. And then there was a break, and I trotted over to you, and I said, Alberta. I, I know only one person at that point from Alberta. <laughs> and I said, would you like to go with me to see the tar sands? What do you say when you want to ask me something like that? Because <laughs> I had been, in, oh, that was it. I'd been invited to speak at the university in Calgary. And that's what sparked it. I thought, oh, I'll go there and that'll pay, me, pay my way uh, up and back. And then, uh, so what we did was, and she said yes. And uh, so we, uh, she met me there in Calgary. Calgary after the conference was over, and we went up to Edmonton, where her family's from at that point. Her parents were down there, and her brother still was there. And um, then we did a gig in Edmonton, and with that money, we <laughs> flew to Fort McMurray, right on the edge of the tar sands and hired a plane and five seater <laughs> and flew out for an hour over this mordor this is unspeakable unspeakable horror that is uh and then uh the next day uh i drove with others, you you had to get back, but um, along where the tailings of the uh, uh, near the river, but where they bring up such poisoned uh, water for for trying to dig up, it's like fracking. It's like mega fracking. Uh, huge lakes that are so toxic that if uh, migratory birds land, they die, and so. As we drove out through the fumes, you could hear guns, boom, boom, which were cannons being fired to scare off the 
migratory, the ducks and geese, when they thought about it, yeah. When you expose yourself to walk into a, the, a grief like that, uh, then it uh, something happens to you, and you get um, inspired in some ways. You were inspired to write a song, and I'm going to ask you to play it. <laughs> and she's it, the Athabasca River is so was such a great, noble river coming down from the Rockies and across Alberta and on up to the flow into the Mackenzie and the Arctic. So great. And it's a river of death now for the creatures and for the people. Remember when we were at the airport, the little airport in Fort McMurray, and we were waiting to get on the plane, and this um, First Nation woman was there, and she saw that we had a big camera, and, uh, and so she video camera, and she came up to us, and she she was flying to her, uh, there's, a little, uh, there's a town called Chippewan, she was flying up there, it's even further north, and that whole region is, is really being affected. And the, um, like so many places, the, a lot of the young people being lured into from their tribal indigenous settings to work in these oil fields, these farm fields. And, um, but she said to us, um, please tell everybody what you see. And so, I just, there's a little, just also, maybe just a, a, a silver lining or just a little good news is that Alberta had a miraculous election two weeks ago where 44 years of the most conservative government in the history of the country was um, defeated by the NDP, that is the left party of Canada. Nobody could have, I would have never dreamed that in my lifetime I'd see anything like that. A new, new premier of Alberta is a woman and half of her cabinet, 43% of the cabinet are female. And uh, so they just took her two weeks ago, and so there's some some optimism about what might transpire in Alberta. So we can all hope some good news as well. Are you hearing this? Can you hear my guitar up there?
So let's stand and um, have a stretch. And we're gonna, I'm trying to, I want to think of a way to give you some exercise <laughs> while uh, moving you to sit down with another woman. So um, you're going to get creative about that. Uh, traverse the room around. If, um, yeah, step around, step around. And I will um, Yeah, that's exactly it. This will be like uh, musical chairs, and you don't know when I'm going to... Oh, you strum. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.